to Social Workers Break Room. This is Imelda. And I'm Jennifer. And today we bring you how to totally ace your LMSW exam. Stay with us. <coughs> Perfect. Waking up in the moon. Thinking about so many things. Just, Just wish things would get better. <laughs> But what is the, 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 I know the first <laughs> three lines. Oh, you tried to get rid of them. The no sense. <laughs> you know what that's Yeah. Oh, that's our <clears throat> fight song for the day. <laughs> Do we need to have a fight song? <laughs> I don't know if our fight song should be about childhood trauma, but. <laughs> I'm all over here. <laughs> Can't stop her. <laughs> uh, no, wait, what do they call it? Um. Walkout song. There you go. Oh, now you like song. your hype song. Yeah. Like when I was doing my my leadership program with the students, um, I told them to send me their walkout song. Like pretend that you are a celebrity or you're a, a UFC fighter or something like that, you know, and you come out on stage. Uh, what's your, what will be your song? And they send me pretty and interesting stuff. Waking up, up in the moon. Thinking about so many things. <laughs> just wish it could better. You're just sauntering out there. <laughs> And then I start crying. <laughs> and then I go into my... Jokes on them. Yeah. You were already crying. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Now we, <laughs> I was going to say, are we ready to do this? Apparently not. <laughs> okay. So we're going to preface this a little bit here today and talk about the history of the exam before we talk about studying and passing the exam. And for most of this content, I owe a huge shout out to the leaders of the ASWB Accountability Collective for visibilizing this work. So the first thing I want to talk about is how recent this is in the history of practicing social work in our time. So there's the Council on Social Work Education, which is a group that accredits schools and universities, and it's been around since 1952, and the school that Imelda and I went to has been accredited since about 1974. Then there's the Association of Social Work Boards, or the ASWB, which is who administers the exam. So they were founded in 1979 and didn't give out their first exams until 1983, which it did in four states. So, and I don't know about you, Imelda, but I'm lucky enough to work with some pioneers who have been in the field since long before the ASWB or the exam existed. And in fact, it causes problems with them getting their licenses in other states, despite them having been practicing LCSWs for up to a decade before the ASWB was even given the exams in their states. Oh, wow. So let's fast forward to 2021. There are now 64 regulatory boards between the U.S. and Canada using the ASWB, and they're administering 50,000 exams every year. So that means that in a year, there are at least 50,000 test takers takers and new social workers. We often talk about the amount of social workers universities um, graduate or people who graduate from, you know, social work programs and it's, there's a lot of us. It's out astounding, there. really, yeah. and how many exams they're administering. And those of you who registered or taken it know that it's also expensive to take that exam. And you know, fifty thousand a year is quite a bit of money to work with. Mm-hmm. So, and Mel's and I have spoken a lot about licensure as a pathway to title protection. But one thing we kind of try and stray a little bit away from is the exam. So bringing up two points here, you know, this first one being anecdotal, so not a study, but in my personal experience, having been a manager with a diverse staff that I deeply want to succeed and grow in the field, 
I find that my staff who don't have English as a primary language end up failing the exam the first time, if not multiple times, because Mm. of the way the questions are written. Mm -hmm. So the grammar doesn't necessarily internally translate well for folks who don't have English as a first language, um, as well as I find the questions, and this includes, you know, retired questions and reputable study materials as a reference, uh, to include words that don't have a high level of accessibility. So for example, I remember walking through a question that had the word salient in it. So I'm a native English speaker, and I've maybe come across that word a few times while reading. I can't imagine that that's a word that ESL classes spend time on or like, this is important. This is one that you just have to know to get around. So, but my whole question, you know, about accessibility is, is why not just say most important? Why does a question need to read most salient? Mm -hmm. So I did find out, again, you know, anecdotally, one of the accommodations that you can request for the exam is an English dictionary. So if this is something that you think you might need or benefit from, I highly suggest requesting it. This is this is great. Um, as an ESL person myself, um, you know, is, Spanish is my first language. I I don't think I've heard that word that many times in my life. Um, yeah, and it probably if I see it in the exam, I would probably have to look it up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's only if you requested an accommodation beforehand mm. to have access to an English dictionary. Uh, along those same lines, you know, one of the things that I always ask myself when we think about barriers and accessibility, you know, is who is this for? So who is this exam written for and who passes it? And we'll talk in a little bit about kind of the mindset for the exam, but thankfully somebody else has had the same question. Um, And actually the city of University of New York uh, School of Social Work conducted a study on LMSW pass rates. So they looked at a group of about 5,000 text takers. So, you know, we're looking at a significantly smaller portion than those who take it every year, but they looked at about 5,000 folks whose race was known. And then this study actually just got published in January, 2021 of this year. And I do recommend checking it out. But as we're level setting here on kind of the starkest outcomes for me uh, was that white test takers between the ages of 21 and 29 had a 78% pass rate. But when we looked at black test takers over the age of 40, the pass rate was less than 32%. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, that's a huge disparity. Um, And as social workers, we should know that that's a manifestation of a system that isn't designed for those on the margins to succeed. Mm -hmm. So with all that in mind, we're going to be talking about the exam today, but there are people working on this very issue because it's unacceptable and we would be remiss if we talked about the exam without talking about the harm it's caused and is causing to people, especially in groups that are on the margins. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like um, myself, when I have gone through the the study lessons in the book, um, there are definitely things in the book that are problematic, um, that are not reflective of, uh, you know, an inclusive um, field and, you know, just how social workers should be. So I feel like it's important that that you're mentioning this, um, I guess, like, you know, heads up before we dive into studying or people dive into studying for the exam um, that, even though we don't necessarily agree with a lot of the content of the of the exam, we still have to take it in able to in, you know in order to be licensed. So right. So let's talk about the exam as it exists today. So the exam is 170 questions. You have four hours to take it, and you have at least 75 real questions to pass. So and there was a 74 percent pass rate in 2019, but now we also understand about who's passing the exam. Mm-hmm. 
So um, why we say that real questions, so 150 questions are scored and about 20 questions are pilots. So you'll have no idea which ones they are. Um, so you may potentially need, you know, kind of theoretically up to 95 to pass because you don't know how many pilots or which pilot questions you're getting. The entire exam is going to be multiple choice. When you go to your center to take it, you'll be given one half sheet of dry erase paper, a set of noise-canceling headphones. It'll be taken on a computer, and you can flag questions. And the breakdown of the content areas is human development, diversity, and behavior. It's 48 questions. Assessment and intervention planning is 41 questions. Direct and indirect planning is 36 questions. Professional relationships, values, and ethics are 45 questions. So you can see it kind of spans research, macro, micro, ethics. You really need to know how to be a whole well-rounded social worker in order to pass the exam. Nice. Question, do you know if now they have made any accommodations for people for people to take the exam at home? I know um, some test centers like GRE and some other tests, um, you're able to take them at home? I don't know if that's an option for. So no. Um, so they're still all, uh, you know, Pearson centers or similarly accredited and uh, validated testing sites. I will say I just took an exam at a Pearson center recently. They had kind of the shields up. You had to wear a mask through the entirety of your exam. Uh, you had to sanitize on the way in, on the way out. Um, you had to sanitize before you touched the signature pen, after you touched it, before wow. you did your palm scan, after you did your palm scan, after you touched your locker. Um, but, you know, the test computers, you know, weren't any further away than they have been in the past. You know, some of the folks at the facility, some of the staff were wearing masks, some weren't. Imelda and I are also in a state where that's now voluntary. Mm -hmm. um, so that might be something that's unique to our state and test center, but they are still going to be at monitored test centers. Got it. So as Imelda was mentioning, and as we kind of touched on briefly, uh, one of the most important things to get into the mindset for the exam is understanding who the exam was written for. And again, kind of that thinking through the pattern. So generally, and this was told to me by a seventh grade English teacher, that exams are all kind of written for the same people. It's written for upper middle class white people in New York. So that's the mind frame you need to have is, you know, these are folks with, you know, limited margins, you know, more accessibility. You can assume things like two parent households and that their schools are, you know, well funded. So things that we may not always see as social workers. But again, who is this exam written for? Who's being centered in the narrative and in the stories being told through these questions? And it's going to be kind of that mindset. The other thing that can be really difficult for folks is separating their experience from kind of the textbook or, again, the exam world. There's a lot of things that in exam world work out that mm -hmm. don't work in the real world. I remember when I was taking my exam, I don't remember what the question was, but I remember thinking to myself, no, you have to be able to do X, Y, Z, and you can't be able to do Z, Y, X, or you won't get approved for the long-term care system in Arizona. 
And then I said, the exam doesn't care about the long-term care (laughs) system in Arizona. It doesn't know it. It doesn't care. So all the rules that you've learned to live by for your Medicaid, your long-term care, SSI, SSDI, Mm -hmm. your CPS rules, your APS rules, if it's something specific to your state because it's a national exam, the exam can't care about what's specifically happening. Or even availability of resources of like, oh, we know getting a child into a Head Start program is going is very difficult so that's not an option or wait times for programs things like that yeah exactly so one of the things that you know they teach nurses before they go take the NCLEX is you have to imagine that you're in a room with unlimited possibilities so for example um, I remember uh, I have lots of friends who are nurses and you know they took an NCLEX step Uh, prep course. And they said things to the effect of, you know, maybe you are treating a patient and you need this particular kind of tubing. And the hospital that she did, you know, kind of her training at, she's like, well, the the tubing is in the closet at this hospital way down the hall. So I don't have this tubing right now. So I'm going to have to find something else that is in the room. Mm. But in the exam, the tubing's in the room. It's not down the hall. So you have to imagine that you have every resource at your fingertips, even though, like Amanda said, like we don't magically get people into Section 8 housing. We don't magically get kids into Head Start programs or be able to pay water bills. But in the exam, anything is possible. (laughs) Everything works out. There are no brand new barriers. And don't put barriers up for yourself and your exam clients, right? Unless it tells you that there's a barrier. We have to assume that in these cases, there actually isn't one. Mm -hmm. It's funny because If we were to have all those resources, maybe social workers wouldn't be needed anymore. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? I would love to put myself out of my job. That would be my favorite thing. So another thing that I find that folks get hung up on, but also, you know, transparently when I teach people about the stuff that's on the exam, there's a lot of recall Uh, information that is helpful to help you unpack the questions and be able to answer them correctly in the vignettes. But there aren't a ton of, you know, core recall questions. You know, what is Seroquel? Or what are the following five categories to diagnose major depressive disorder? So there's not going to be a ton of kind of cold recall, but there's a lot of information you need to know in order to handle those situational questions correctly. There's also a particular format or things that we want to prioritize as social workers to make sure that clients have the best outcomes. So most situational questions, there's going to be two acronyms that can help you in decision making. So one of the first sets of questions that you'll often say are first or next questions, and they're asking you, what should the social worker do first? Or what should the social worker do next after telling you a little bit of information or a story or a vignette or a situation that came up for a client, for you? Again, it could be anything from research, community organizing, but what should the social worker do first or what should the social worker do next? Mm-hmm. And the acronym for that one is going to be Seferafi, which we'll <laughs> spell that out. So that's S as in Sam, F as in Frank, A as in Apple, R as in Rabbit, E as in Elephant, A as in Apple, F as in Frank, I as in Igloo. And that stands for safety, feelings, assess, refer, educate, advocate, facilitate, or intervene. And to kind of give you, you know, a brief example so that you can ground yourself in of what those look like. So S, safety, always safety first. And that's how you remember that Seferafi goes with your first or next questions. Just think safety first. 
So we obviously want to make sure that clients are safe, right? So if there is an instance of child abuse, suicidality, et cetera. So is it saying, is safety a question? If it is, then you're going to pick the, what the social worker should do first or next is something that has to do with safety. If there are no options for your question, the next one is feelings. So that has to do with validating the client's feelings, making them feel heard, building rapport, et cetera. So an answer that has to do with feelings. If there are no feelings answers, then the next one you look at is assess. So does the client need a specific assessment? Do they need a psych eval? Do they need a mental status exam? Um, or is there something particular in that situation you need to do to assess it? Next is refer. So sometimes the vignette will tell you that they've already done certain steps. You know, you've assessed for safety, you've already had a rapport building session with the client, and you've done a full psychosocial assessment. What should the social worker do next? So it's trying to tell you which steps have already been taken. So the next step would be refer, um, as in, you know, refer for specialized services or refer out. If that's not the correct option, um, or if it's not available, then we move down to educate. So this is going to be, you know, to provide psychoeducation. This could be something, you know, for example, uh, maybe you're providing education on a mental illness for the first time after making a diagnosis. Maybe it's on diabetes for the first time for a patient. Maybe you're telling them a little bit about what therapy is and therapy isn't. Mm. If there is no educating left to do, uh, the next is advocating. So as we're getting down the list here again, first or next, what things are most important? You know, we think of Maslow's hierarchy, Mm -hmm. but this is, you know, the ASWB hierarchy of client needs. (laughs) Um, So advocating for the needs for the patient. So again, most of these other things are things that the social worker is able to do themselves. Now we're getting into the options where we have to involve other people. So it's going to be lower because the exam wants to know about you as a competent social worker, not do you have the ability to broker services? Mm -hmm. Do you have the ability to call someone else? Do you have the ability to, you know, navigate a broken system? So once we're through with educate, the next is advocate. So advocating for the client to have barriers removed, to have access to services, et cetera. After that is facilitate. So facilitate is, you know, kind of helping those folks along that same line. So maybe you're facilitating a referral, facilitating a family meeting where you're playing kind of that either coach, mentor, or connector broker role with the patient. And then finally, intervene. Uh, So intervene is at the bottom because there's lots of different ways to intervene and do an intervention. But we need to make sure that the client is, you know, safe, has rapport. We've assessed them. We make sure they have all their other needs met. And then we're able to typically start with the intervention. So that's Seferafi. And a lot of people can remember Seferafi and some (laughs) folks can't. So one of the things that I sometimes challenge people who are studying is to come up with a more fun way to be able to get those letters out of their brain in order. Because once you write them down again in that little half sheet that you get when you sit down, sometimes it might be easy enough for you to be able to get those, you know, safety feelings out of your brain. So Amelda, I know you have looked at this before. What's <laughs> what did you come up with? Oh, um, I don't think mine is a good example because it's all over the place. But it, I think, like I'm a visual person, and mm-hmm. visually, that's the first thing that came to my mind when I saw um, the 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 letters and the acronyms. I think for me, S, the first S, uh, or the only S, um, stands for social workers, of course, um, and then. Fair, I of course is not the proper or the right um, you know way to spell it, but my mind is like social workers are fair, um, and they AF 
You know, we all know what AF means. And the I'll go I, for you. <laughs> there you go. And the I for indeed. So in my mind, think of social workers are fair, AF, indeed. Excellent. I don't know. You know, it's just, I've, I've been trying to think of other ways to remember it, but it's stuck in my brain that way. And hey, it, whatever works, right? Love it. Yeah. I finally think I remember Seferafi at this point. Seferifi. I think I've said it so many times. Yep. <laughs> So the next one, so first, next aren't the only kind of situational questions you'll come up with on the exam. There are also going to be a lot of questions that will ask you what is best for the social worker to do or what is the most likely going to be the next step or what is most important to do uh, for that patient, again, client vignette situation. So this acronym is, I call it AASPRINS because that's kind of what it looks like to me. Mm -hmm. And I remember that it goes with the best most, because for a while we thought that aspirin was the best medicine. Mm -hmm. And then we realized that maybe you shouldn't give that to children. Um, But, you know, (laughs) 21st century medicine and all. Um, So I just spelled A as an apple, A as an apple, S as in Sam, P as in Paul, R as in rabbit, I as in igloo, N as in Nancy, S as in Sam. So uh, aspirins. So it works. It does. If you can remember it like that, awesome. If not, try and come up with something fun that will help you remember it. Um, And again, we'll kind of go through the letters here. So A is acknowledge the client or patient and begin building rapport. So what's the best thing for the social worker to do in this situation, right? If a client, it might be giving you examples, for example, um, if it's best most situations, a lot of times it's going to be difficult situations where either you're elevated, the client's elevated, there's a difficult ethical decision to be made. Um, So it's trying to get you to, it'll have multiple correct answers. It's trying to get you to pick the best one. So um, acknowledge the client and begin building rapport, right? If we are not in a position for the client to feel seen or heard, we're probably not going to get anywhere, nor are we going to be acting our best. So that's the first one. Uh, The next is assess. So there's two A's in a row. So after we've acknowledged the client, or sometimes it'll be like, you know, you've already validated the client's feelings, you know, now what's best to do in this situation with Mm -hmm. the following options. Uh, So assess, uh, kind of using the DICE model. So determine, identify, clarify, explore. So you might have, again, multiple choice, A, B, C, D. Uh, If there's ones that have kind of those keywords in there, you're going to determine the diagnosis. You're going to identify next steps. You're going to clarify the problem. You're going to explore the difficulty. So if you're seeing kind of those keywords, even though it's not using the word assess in the answer, it's using those similar kind Mm. of words to tell you, okay, we're making an assessment here. Got it. If you've already assessed in your lovely vignette, uh, S then starts, says start where the patient is at. So we always want to start where the patient is at. In this situation, we build rapport and assess first and then start where the patient is. Next after that is going to be protect life. So protect life of the individual or community. Um, So this is about determining and preventing danger to self or others. So oftentimes in those first next scenarios, those are going to be the ones that talk about safety. Um, But sometimes it still can come up in your best most situation. So it's a little bit further down the list than it is in first next because, right, we need to do safety first. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to do a ton of stuff, it's going to fall usually a little bit lower. So it's down here under P, protect life. 
Uh, next after that is intoxicated. Do not treat. Refer out. If you're a patient, if it gives you the keys that the patient is, you know, uh, a lot of times they won't say that the patient is drunk. They might say something like the patient smells of alcohol. The patient is slurring their words. The patient reports, quote, I drink two forties on the way over here, end quote. But it's not going to say the patient's drunk, but the question's trying to tell you the patient's intoxicated. Don't treat intoxicated patients. So on the exam, right? Again, in real life, we're not going to say, okay, well, like, don't die, I guess. You know, we're going to actually do something about it. In this situation, if they're intoxicated, the exam's trying to get you to refer them out to an agency who is equipped to handle intoxicated folks. Right. Uh, next is going to be rule out medical issues. So a lot of you know that the LMSW is oftentimes a barrier to work in hospitals. It's often required for most hospital social work jobs. Uh, so it wants you to be able to know what's in and out of your scope of practice, right? So if we're thinking of the best thing to do. Sometimes the best thing to do is to say, hey, I can't tell if this is dementia or delirium or depression, but all these symptoms that you're giving me in the vignette sound most like delirium. So I'm going to want to rule out that medical issue first before I start treating the patient for depression. Uh, eyes inform consent. So before we intervene, we need to make sure that the patient is doing, knowing what we're doing, why we're doing it, when we're doing it, and that they give adequate informed consent for all of that. So that either eye is informed consent and is holding your non-judgmental stance, which we hope that you hold all the time. <laughs> uh, but sometimes what's going to be best for you to do in these situations is a client, you know, it might give you particularly uh, ethically challenging vignettes. It might say, you know, you're someone who uh, doesn't agree with same-sex marriage and your client just came out to you in a session as gay. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be like hold a non-judgmental stance, you know, with the patient to proceed with services, you know, might give you other options like refer them out or like tell them they're terrible people, right? Like sometimes the exam <laughs> gives you bad answers that you can cross <laughs> them right out. But Problems not judgmental stance. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But not not all questions will be like that, unfortunately. We wish. Yeah. Some days. <laughs> and then the final in our aspirins uh, <laughs> is going to be support patient self-determination. So we want to make sure, again, just like in the um, sephirophy, those ones where we were kind of navigating for the patient and we weren't able to solve the problem were at the end. Same here, right? So that non-judgmental stance, ruling out medical issues and supporting patient self-determination are less about what you're doing. And again, you have to remember that the exam is measuring you as a social worker all by yourself, which another kind of exam hot tip <laughs> here is, uh, again, it's measuring you as a social worker. So if the answer is go run to your supervisor and then figure it out, even if that's totally normal at your agency or 100% like, yeah, what I you would do, do in that. real life. Exactly. <laughs> You're like, oh yeah, I staff all my cases before I call CPS. Yeah. No, <laughs> the exam wants me to make sure you can be a social worker all by yourself. So mm -hmm. the exam is rarely ever run to your supervisor and make them deal with it or go to them first and then figure it out. You know, it might say something like immediately resolve the situation as much as possible and then staff with your supervisor or like, you know, address it with a colleague directly and if unable to be resolved, then go to your supervisor, right? So supervisor still may be mentioned in correct answers, but the answer is never pawn this off on your supervisor, go running to them, you know, act like you don't know what you're doing, right? It's always going to be 
We want you to be a good social worker all on your own. Don't go to your supervisor first. All by myself. No wanna be. Waking up in the morning. It's Melda's favorite song. I just take it for her. It is. It's been for the past two weeks. I can get it out of my head. So what I hope Imelda can't get out of her head is all these wonderful study materials we're going to talk about next. <laughs> take take two aspirins because it has a double A. So that's the way I remember it. Ooh, two aspirins. We love dub- that. Double A, you know? Because who takes one? Do you no. know anyone who takes one ibuprofen? No, I take three. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched her take three in her defense. Yep. So yeah, take two, take two aspirins. That's good for the double A. So there's lots of things to buy to study, and there are some really expensive programs out there. I'm here to tell you, you don't need expensive programs to pass the exam. Promise. So here are some essentials. The first is going to be the Dawn Apgar book. So if you search it, it should come up on Amazon, as well as if you're in Facebook groups, there's a lot of people who will have passed the exam who would be willing to loan it to you, sell it to you. Um, There are different versions of it. The new ones don't change too much. You just want to make sure it's from a relatively recent year. It should have a green cover, Um, whether it's like a green and white color or a green, blue Mm -hmm. and white cover. It doesn't really matter. There's a couple pages different. Uh, The exam is probably going to be updated in 2022. So, you know, also take that into consideration with your studying and when you decide to take the exam and also purchase materials. You know, we don't want you buying materials for an exam that, you know, is potentially going to be radically different. Oh, it's going to change in 2022? That's what it says, oh. <laughs> is they're considering it. I better hurry up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you're only going to be able to afford to buy one thing, for me, it would definitely be the Don Apgar book. Um, there are two versions of it, at least on Amazon, if you choose to get your books more ethically sourced. And first of all, bravo. Um, but yeah. Sometimes there is no ethical consumption of their capitalism. We all got to get stuff somewhere. Um, so the Don Apgar book, there is one that comes with like, it's the book and an extra set of test questions. I would actually caution people against that. Mm. Um, it causes you to study from the questions and the questions are the content. It's one example of one way that the content may come up on the exam. And what happens when people look at a lot of study questions is they start to try and memorize the right answer oh. and not the content. And those questions are probably not the ones that are going to be in the, in the exam. Exactly. So, and the more you go looking for questions, the more trouble you'll get yourself into mm-hmm. because there are very few people who know it's on the exam. Don Apgar, you know, wrote it for many years and then the ASWB administers it. So if it's not one of those two sources, I highly recommend being very cautious of its viability. So speaking of that, the next is going to be the Pocket Prep app, which now it says like the Behavioral Health Exam app. But if you search like the ASWB exam and the App Store, there will be a version for the LMSW. And if you, you know, are looking at the different options and it doesn't look right, you can download the old one and then it'll tell you specifically how to download the new version of it. Because the old one said like ASWB LMSW, it was blue and white, and now it's kind of hot pink or purple and white and says Behavioral Health Exam. So there's really two ways to use it. So it comes with about 100 free questions. Uh, You can get up to 1,000 questions um, if you pay for the subscription. So it used to be a one-time fee. Now, unfortunately, it's a subscription every month. So something for you to kind of budget in for how many months am I going to study? So how many months am I going to pay for this subscription? 
But what is, I think, most important to leverage that app for is it will divide your incorrect and correct answers into the categories of the exam, like human behavior and development, so that you know where your weak spots are. So you can turn back to your Don Apgar book and say, hey, this is my weak spot. So this is where I'm going to spend my time studying. And you might say, I am the master of medications don't need to study that. You might say, I, you know, I have a bachelor's in family and human development. I don't need to study human development. I know this like the back of my hand, but the pocket prep app will actually show you kind of your breakdown of those categories so that you know where to spend your time studying. Cause if you already know the stuff and then you try and put more information on top of it, you're going to start second guessing yourself. You'd be confused. Yeah. Finally, mm-hmm. uh, I would say one of the best things, and these are in order of importance for me, but if you can, the ASWB practice exam. So this is really, really important for two reasons, and you can only buy it if you're registered for the exam. So once you've turned in all the stuff to your board and you get approved to take the exam, you know, typically you'll get an email saying you can register uh, through the ASWB for the exam, then it'll allow you to buy the exam practice test. So, uh, again, two reasons it's great. One is it looks exactly like the real exam. So it'll look exactly like it will at the Pearson Center. So for those of you who haven't taken an exam at, you know, an electronic testing center before, you know, it'll give you time to walk through all the controls. How do you go backward? How do you go forward? How do you flag? Where does the timer show up? So that when you go, you know, to your test center and sit down to take it, you already know exactly what the computer is going to look like. So you don't have to stress about figuring out the computer. Because again, I took an exam recently. They only give you about five to 10 minutes on that computer tutorial. So if you're someone who needs more than five minutes to get comfortable with how the exam works. Again, highly recommending the practice exam. The other thing that makes it really incredible is it's actually made up of retired test questions. So these are questions that used to be on the LMSW exam. So it's going to be the absolute closest thing to the actual exam that you will see. Because this was, you know, for example, the practice exam that's out today might have the questions that I sat for you know, four years ago. Mm-hmm. So with all that, that's lots of materials and we've linked some extras as well on the episode page. Kind of the recommended cadence for people who pass it is studying for about two to three months before the exam for about a few hours a day. So kind of keep that in mind, especially those of you who are graduating or you are looking at a dream job that requires a license. It's not just applying for the license. It's getting to take the exam and then getting to pass it and making mm-hmm. sure that you have that adequate time to study beforehand. It's a commitment. Yeah. Two or three months. It certainly is. Mm-hmm. And then plus the time you have, I, at least for me, I have to take into consideration the time that it takes to gather all the paperwork that I need, my transcripts and Everything else that they require um, to submit it, get approval for them to give me the go so I can take the test. So it's not just like two or three months, but, you know, the the time before applying for it as well. Exactly. And for those of you who are, you know, listening to this as we're still in COVID times, there are, you know, some considerations to that, right? Lots of testing centers were closed for mm-hmm. a long time in certain states because it wasn't considered a necessary service. Or, for example, some Pearson centers were only allowing nurses and EMTs to take their exams. Social workers weren't considered an essential service in some states. Um, or, you know, it was people who were like, 
I don't know, sitting to become like certified basket weavers, right? Like they weren't allowed (laughs) to take their exam for the whole pandemic. And now the basket weavers are out in full force, hogging up all the Pearson appointments now that we're, you know, coming out of this a little bit. So some states are really backed up in exam times, um, as well as some states are backed up because their boards got backed up. They have less processors. They have less staff. People are working from home. People are on flex schedules. So there's lots of factors that may make your time to be able to sit for the exam reduced. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, everyone's also about to graduate. So you're about to be competing with, if you're not about to be in this graduating class, with everyone who's graduating with their MSW in May or June is going to want to apply for their license right away, many of them, so that they can get different or more uh, job opportunities Mm -hmm. in the field. Um, As well as, again, just because you got approved to take the exam doesn't mean that the test center is open Like, you know, on your perfect exam date, right? So I remember when I got approved, I got approved in June. And I was like, I'm going to take this in June before all of this information falls out of my head. First date available, July 17th. Yeah. That was more time than I wanted. I had spent my two months studying. I was ready to go. And the test center said, we're full. Mm-hmm. We're full until July 17th. So I guess I have, on July 17th. I have a friend who is studying for the MCAT for medical school. Mm. And she's been studying for, for a few months now. And she just received notice that her test is at the end of May in a different state. So she's like, so, you know, all her, her plans for the next few months had to change because she was not um, taking into account that they were not going to be able to give her an, uh, a test date or an appointment in the state in the month that she wanted. So, yeah, things are still up in the air. Some locations are closed, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, thankfully, most of these exams across states seem to be administered at Pearson View test centers, which there are lots of them. So if you need to sit in another state or let's say, for example, maybe you were really smart and you went out to Arizona for college, and but you live in Indiana. So you might choose if you want to hold a license in two states or you might apply to the Indiana board, but maybe your lease isn't up until the summer. You should theoretically be able to schedule out a Pearson View Center in Arizona. So there are lots of options, especially those of you who maybe live on the East Coast. You know, I'm from New Hampshire. If it were me, I would be looking at New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Maine. Like, where else could I drive to to get a sooner appointment or a later appointment, depending on what you need? Mm -hmm. So as also briefly mentioned, if you're someone who would benefit from accommodations, so earlier I mentioned uh, having accessibility to an English dictionary. Um, Other accommodations we've heard approved are extra time for the exam. So it's four hours if you need additional time. Um, the other thing to think about that additional time, for example, I've had you know lots of colleagues in the field be pregnant while they're taking the exam. When you go to the bathroom, you are permitted to go to the bathroom, but the clock still runs. Mm. So if you're someone with IBS or incontinence issues or are pregnant or just know you go to the bathroom a lot, your time is going to keep going. So you might consider extra time, even though you technically don't need extra time for the exam, the clock runs while you go to the bathroom. Uh, Some other accommodations we've seen uh, to be able to take your exam in a private room away from other folks, again, may or may not be an accommodation available at your local test center. They might determine, you know, other equivalent accommodations for you. 
um, access to your locker for snack or water. Um, again, especially if you're pregnant or if you have diabetes or anything to do with your blood sugar, or if that's something that would make you feel more comfortable, confident, energized, you know, during the exam that does need to be requested in advance. For any of these accommodations, do you know if they require any documentation? Let's say if, you know, if you have a condition that you need to have access to water or snack, do you have to provide any type of supporting documents for them to approve this accommodation or do you just request it? Do you know? Yeah. So you have to request it. Um, everyone does it a little bit differently. A lot of them are going to be directly through the ASWB um, and some of them are going to be required to go through your state board and your board will say, yes, social workers can have the following things. And a lot of them, it, it's going to be the ASWB as the exam administrators who say you can have this or that. But typically you, a lot of folks have been able to get their accommodations by writing a letter. Mm. Um, sometimes that letter needed to be signed by certain people. Some people have needed, you know, documentation, but unfortunately it's up to the approving entity what they decide is sufficient in order to grant the accommodation. Interesting. Well, something to take into consideration too, that might take extra time time. for you to get approved. So yeah, thinking ahead. So we've talked a lot about the exam and everything kind of under its umbrella today. So if you're interested in learning more, we actually offered a study group this winter and it went great. It went great. (laughs) I took it. I haven't taken the exam, but I went through the whole program with Jennifer and she's amazing. Highly recommended. Well, thanks. 10 out of 10. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So we're hoping to offer one again this spring, especially for those of you who are new grads or maybe you are just wanting to seek a change or some professional development or see your career continue to grow. So make sure you're following us on Instagram at socialworkersbreakroom for updates and announcements. And as always, we'll have linked all the helpful resources we mentioned today in this episode on our website. And we'll see you next time with your LMSWs. Get it, get it. Waking up in the morning. Think about so many things. I see. That's going to be me the, the morning of the exam. <laughs> like, just get into stuff.